Chris Chang and Phillips will be your hosts for the next half hour on All That Matters. All That Matters is a weekly show from CJSR that shares stories about arts and culture around Alberta. Each week, we take small bites out of a big question. This week's episode, authenticity. If you hang around City Centre Mall as much as I do, you might have noticed a new addition to the retail space. I'm talking about the store called Indigenous. It used to be located on the first floor, but now they've moved it to the second level of the mall. I was automatically curious about the store because of its name. I was curious because when I think about the term Indigenous, I think it describes a global population of people who have maintained cultural practices and traditions despite foreign influences. But in Canada, the word Indigenous specifically refers to the descendants of First Nations peoples. Still again, First Nations peoples in Canada are not one people, but a group of nations with roots spread across the country and as well as south of the border. Having this in mind, I was a bit skeptical, but I still went in to check it out. I found the merchandise looked like an an imitation of Native American items, but what really caught my eye was that the shoes and bags had a pattern similar to those of Andean textiles. And on top of all of that, the t-shirts that I looked at, the labels said that they were made in Honduras. So basically the biggest question for me after visiting the store is if anyone can place a if anyone can place a claim of authenticity in arts and culture when there are so many global influences that have made a mark in indigenous cultures. We made several attempts to connect with the store owners Christina and Armando Altavo for an interview, but they did not make themselves available for us to speak to them. Nevertheless, we've got two stories that demonstrate authenticity in terms of cultural identity and staying true to who you are. First, we'll bring you a story from a local artist. Yeah. One of the most fraught conversations about authenticity right now is how we decide when people are appropriating elements of indigenous cultures. And it can feel so polarizing that a lot of us just don't want to talk about it at all. Like, you either think it's okay to wear a headdress to Folk Fest or you don't. But maybe one of the reasons why it's so hard to talk about it is that in the settler community, those of us who aren't indigenous, we don't have any models of what it would look like to be respectful of indigenous cultures. So, in our next story, we've got one approach. You know, in our community, it's stories are sacred. Hi, I'm Don Marie Marsh, and I'm a local Edmonton artist. Uh, I'm Cree Métis from Cold Lake First Nations, um, and I'm a visual artist around this city. Don Marie Marchand is based in Edmonton these days. That's a good place to look for her paintings and installations of stories from her family and inky blue and purple landscapes, like her installation, A Place to Hang Your Stories, which you might have seen at Edmonton City Hall when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was in town, or you might have stepped inside of it. How that started was uh, I was asked by somebody who had been volunteering and was quite involved with walking with our sisters, um, Christy Belcourt's installation, where she's got vamps that were mailed from across the country. Uh, Moccasin tops, um, they're brought to um, one location, and uh, they're beaded or however you want to make them, but they represent one unfinished life or one murdered and missing Indigenous woman. So... um, and while she was doing that volunteering, she realized that uh, our ceremonies had a power to heal and to bring things forward in a good way. You know, it's triggering, but it's healing. And so 
she wanted to know if I would be interested to do something different but, but similar to, uh, to the TRC which was coming into the city at the time. So I took it to prayer and I took it to, uh, to um, my elders and, uh, and I, I had an idea for what I'd like to do so I went and got permissions from people who were affected and I asked if it would be okay if I did that. And then from that point, I, um, I did similar, I, I did a call similar to Christy Belcourt's where it was on social media and I asked people to mail me um, three inch by nine inch pieces of paper with their stories, their residential school stories. And uh, on Twitter, you threw this out? Yeah, Twitter and Facebook. And um, so I ended up with over 500 coming and I collaged wow. them onto a, um, onto a, like a gazebo, but I painted the tent to look like a mini schoolhouse. Mm -hmm. So that's one example of, of making sure that you've got people that you're accountable to um, and recognizing where that accountability lies. If I'm doing community-based artwork, my accountability is to the community. Um, and that's where I have to lay it, and because I'm the one holding those stories, right, for, th for those people. She also asked community members to weigh in on whether to integrate tobacco into the exhibit, and decided the public might not get tobacco's sacred role. But it did come up in how she asked permission to share residential school survivors' stories on the paper bricks that covered the little schoolhouse. This little old lady from Cool Lake First Nations, uh, Nancy Scanny, uh, Blue Quills Indian Residential School survivor, she had come to my house and she was having tea. And um, she actually had seen a different painting than I had and she loved it and she, um, she said it reminds me of Indian Residential School but, you know, not the bad stuff. So I, I told her she could keep it. And then she started telling stories about residential school. And she told some pretty horrible stories. But the one thing she said that struck me is she said, in residential school, I learned to lie, uh, lie or be beaten. I learned to steal, steal or go hungry. I learned to hide things to survive, right? And that was the first time I'd heard a residential school survivor talking about the socialization of Indian residential school. And I was like, that was so succinct and so perfect. So I ran and I grabbed my tobacco and I asked her for that. That must have been a little overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a few breakdowns. <laughs> Um, so that's a lot of hoops that most artists wouldn't go through to think about, like, what is the significance of the tobacco going to be in this setting, you know, kind of consulting with the community around you. Why does it matter to you to go through that whole process? Mostly because it's, it's part of decolonization. You know, um, Indian Residential School really stripped these cultural understandings away from us. And, you know, uh, I'm 44 now, but um, I remember not having the knowledge of how these things worked when I was growing up and actually being discouraged from it. So um, my, 
I always believed it was backwards because you know that's what they're ta- you're taught in school. You know, you're, it's a it's a backwards way of living, and you're hanging on to things that are holding you back. And you know, you you need to be more progressive. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that the cultural tools that I have, the the things that are in my toolbox, are actually the things that bring me more comfort, more joy, more. Sus- and as I remove myself from this forced shame, the more I realize we're going to lose all of it. And so for me personally, this is my, my own personal thing. I, I choose this way because um, cultural survivance. It's about making sure that my children and my children's children and my grandchildren and all of those that are going to come behind me um, recognize how to do this and and don't feel guilty about it. So Don Marie feels more confident now making art with elements of Cree culture, but she says that there are two easy traps for outsiders to fall into. Romanticizing Indigenous people as all beautiful beads and feathers and demonizing them as the savage Indian or the drunk Indian. In both cases, the preconceived image gets in the way of seeing the actual people at the heart of the image. And their real history and issues. Um, it's one thing for me, who's within the culture, to bring these things up. I have the authentic voice to bring these things up. Um, somebody who is outside the culture, um, I, I think sometimes they just propagate the same imagery that's just been there since colonial times. You know? Now, one way to address this that's been suggested um, is from a mutual friend of ours, um, Zoe Todd, a Métis writer and academic um, who's from Edmonton, and um, she has said that um, the Edmonton arts institutions largely just do this so poorly. Um, they're, uh, it's, it's so common for them to appropriate Indigenous stories without being respectful that her suggestion is just boycott the Edmonton <laughs> arts institutions. <laughs> just, um, just wholesale. So what is your response to that? Well, um, and, and it was really funny because Zoe put that, that blog out and I read it and I thought, wow, she really kicked open a can of worms here because she nailed a lot of issues that need to be discussed. Having said that, I am Yeg Arts. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I, I I told her, sorry, kiddo, I'm not boycotting nothing. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, no, because there's ways that we have been doing some really subversive stuff, underground stuff, radical stuff, and it's right in the public eye. So I'm, I told Zoe that, you know, as much as I, I love what she's saying, I'm not going to support, I, I personally can't support a, a boycott of Yegart. Having said that, I'm not going to stop what I'm doing. You know, I'm going to keep pushing those boundaries and um, taking the artwork right into the community because I think, I think our community's ready for it. I think, I think the institutions, um, you know, they serve their purpose. But these conversations that we want to have, we want to have them in the streets. Even if it's people yelling, even like, oh my God, sometimes I got some nasty ass people. I'm sorry. But we got some really rude people in this city. 
and when I'm doing my installation, I've got people yelling at me and swearing at me and all kinds of things. And But at the same time, I want them to see me. I want them to see the culture with its beauty and its flaws. And I want them to start recognizing who we are as a people, because we've got something to contribute. Thanks to Don Marie Marchands for speaking with us. We'll have a link to her work on our website and to Zoe Todd's blog post that started the Boycott Yegarts debate. You're listening to All That Matters from CGSR 88.5 FM. Stories that ask big questions about arts and culture around Alberta. Today, we're asking what is authentic? He was born in South, De- South Sudan and became a child soldier at the age of seven. Emmanuel Zhao has become a global citizen through his work as an activist, hip hop artist, and storyteller. Emmanuel's story is certainly an emotional one, one that I'm personally connected to since my family was scattered and displaced from their homelands due to the War of Independence in Mozambique during the 1960s and 70s. But what's really brilliant about Emmanuel is his strong sense of self that he displays. In my opinion, Emmanuel's distinct from other hip-hop artists through his use of indigenous languages Nuer and Dinka and how he incorporates different South Sudanese dance styles in his performance. Emmanuel and I sat down at the Edmonton Folk Music Festival to discuss authenticity in music and the growing spread of African influences in mainstream music. Uh, my name is Emmanuel Jal. I'm a recording artist, so I'm originally from South Sudan, but now I've become more like a global citizen, so I travel most of the time, but I've relocated myself and I'm based in Toronto. And I'm mostly involved in my charity work because I started a charity called Boy Africa, which work with families, individuals to help them overcome the effect of war and poverty. So there's so many things I'm involved with, like that I do all the time. So the We Want Peace movement, which is the platform I use to create conscious awakening, like when I'm performing, to just get people to go out there because I believe if we share experiences for social emotional learning we're able to put a spotlight in a dark place that make evil performance and my stories I'm bringing a story from being a child soldier to where I am today and and that reach anybody who has ears it is able to reach their heart and what I always see is if you touch somebody's heart, it will take them a long lifetime to do whatever cause that they submitted. If you touch their mind, they'll act on it. So when I listen to your music, I, the one song in particular, yeah. Yeah. so when I listened to it and I was watching the video, I was like, okay, you totally remind me of this one artist. It's actually a group. They're from Mozambique mm. and they're called Jaka. And so it's Whoa. interesting because even though you guys are both African descent, you have very distinct experiences and come from different cultures. Do you ever get told that you, like people compare you to other artists? Yeah, I do get it uh, told that. But I, what I look at myself, I look myself like a learning musician because I didn't come from a musical background. 
and so I started doing music when I was like 20 something and so sometimes people tell me oh like uh, Peter Gabriel tells me like I have a potential of a young Bob Marley yesterday a little kid was watching my show told me look you don't mind your Bob Marley you don't sing like him but like the energy the way you enjoy your show we like that you know and different people come and tell me yo man you don't have an amazing voice but the passion that you can express <laughs> make me understand your music and I just love your music so there's different flavors of how people come and so I like different sounds what kind of music do you like to listen to at the moment I listen to a lot of African music so and also I listen to American hip-hop because that's the first influence in how I was uh, doing my because when I first did hip-hop I thought you're supposed to do it in American accent so and I and then when I did more research I realized that my village kids used to rap as well so and I'm taking time to introduce that traditional rapping style which is slightly different because you put a little bit of uh, for example, the way people used to rap is like, or you could say, if you listen to that, it's almost like hip hop. So now, but I kind of like, because back home we don't have the rules, there's nothing called off key. There's <laughs> nothing called like, you have to go one, two, three, four, like here. So it's easy to do it, but now because the music system here, the rules are you have to go ta ha ha, you know. <laughs> when in Africa you go ta ha ha ha, you can actually do six. You know, you, you can do like a, a song which is like maybe like a bar and a half, or you know, or two bar and a half, and it can still work with the keys. <laughs> yeah, so that's the challenge. So. Mentioned the accent thing about being a hip hop artist because yeah. that's something that I've noticed even African yeah. hip hop artists try to sound America American even their appearance because that maybe for them they think because hip hop emerged you know in certain parts of the states that for it to be authentic they have to re reproduce that. What about you? How did you come to terms and say like that you want to be presented the way you are and speak how you want to? You see, I come from a country torn by war and. I wanted to use my experiences for social emotion learning and also I just wanted to be slightly different and, and that's what I tried but if you look at it you can't blame most of uh, those African rappers because if you look at the radio stations we have the influence the TV the newspaper it's the system we, we the, the culture has not been guarded so you grow up as a child what you see on TV is what is encoded in you, so you start doing that. When I came to Kenya, I didn't know like hip-hop was American sound. I thought they were Africans. I thought they were Kenyans. Yes. So I used to get confused. So it took me a while to actually understand, oh, these people are not African. They were slaves that were taken to different uh, countries. So <laughs> that's how I grew up. Maybe a small kid, don't even know maybe until they reach a certain age. And so we cannot blame anyone dressing like an American because it's the culture. You're growing as a kid, you see your mom probably doing the same thing. Maybe in the village. In the village you find authentic African musicians come up with a style because they are connected with the culture. I'm not connected with my culture, so I tend to learn. 
right now I listen to Nigerian music, I listen to South African music, Zimbabwe, even uh, any part of our Mozambique, anywhere I could find any kind of music just to entertain myself. Mm -hmm. And then because I'm an international scene and hip-hop has been set up in the standard of America, I try to see who are the top American artists out there. So I would listen to their flow, you know. I listen to everybody. I can listen to Lil Wayne, I can listen to 50 Cent, Kanye West. I would listen to the new school, Jay-Z, you know. Sometimes I can listen to Fela Kuti. Because sometimes I think, in my own world, when I used to make music, I think, I'm original, but when you make a song, you go on YouTube, no, somebody made this, you know? Exact same song, So yeah. somebody sang exact words that you're saying, you know, so like, it's like, it's the way you tweak it, and it's amazing how you can find a hook that is different from somebody else, and then you get away with it. Because mm -hmm. songwriting is almost like stealing somebody's, you take two lines from that guy, then one line from a lady you heard before, <laughs> subconsciously you don't, and then you write. For sure. So I used to write without uh, listening to others, but what I came to realize, if I want to improve, I have to listen to others. Mm -hmm. But I had good writers that write with me, and, and there's a guy called Clinton Atun in UK. He helped me write my story in a proper hip-hop style. Mm -hmm. So you travel all around the world, I would guess predominantly around North America and Europe. Do you, do you tour in Africa as well? Yeah. I had, uh, I had my African tour. So I do it with years and years, three months, say I'm going to go tour this continent. But mostly my big market is North America. So mostly when I'm touring in Africa, it's not money making, it's basically whatever I've invested over the years, so I just go out there and try to connect recently. Yeah. In your opinion, what do you think it is? Why is it that certain African musicians, whether they're singing like indigenous, like their traditional music, or just kind of more contemporary, like artists like Awilo or um, Two-Face, like from Nigeria, why is it that they don't have a big appeal in Western societies? Like in North America, you won't find their music played on the radio, like a top 40s radio station. It will always be a world or ethnic radio station. Why do you think there's that categorization, even though there's so many people of African descent or non-Africans who listen to their music here? I think it's because some of them are comfortable where they are. Because their audience are supporting them. Someone like me, I'm a refugee. My country's at war. They're busy. How are they going to support my art? So I started in Kenya. Kenya supported me. So with the story, the story gave me an opportunity, a more different platform where I can perform. Because there's activism and all other stuff. Well, there's World Music Radio Networks, alternative radio network, but it's in America are very strong in protecting the American culture. So there are rules in place that you have to embed because America culture has dominated the entire planet. So the movies, the music, so their music is like everywhere. And so if you look at those guys, they are very good in their art, you know. People, they, they have fans and Facebook and Twitter, YouTube has changed everything now. There's a lot of cultures and like um, certain things that have been brought into the mainstream. Like with Beyonce, the Who Runs the World, she brought people from Mozambique to teach her how to dance like Pansula. What do you think about something from your own culture as a newer person? If that were to be brought in the mainstream, would you feel like, no, this is appropriation? Or do you feel like that's an opportunity for people to learn and you'd be comfortable with it? Well, if you look 
some of the greatest musicians, they reach, they teach, they uh, search culture. And from that culture, they learn that dancing incorporated in their music. Beyonce was smart enough and bringing African dancing style became work. Now, if you look at Azonto, it was a little dance, dance somewhere in Ghana, and then they just, it became mainstream. Everybody, everybody on the scene yesterday, people ask, yo, do you know how to do Azonto? How come you're not doing it in your, in your set? If you have to be able to, to, to find different dance. If when I'm doing my, my performance, some of my dancing style are weird, you know, you, you can't easily get them. So in the future, I want to incorporate tribal dance into the beat. Because some dance has to go in a certain beat. Now I have a warrior dance which is incorporated with a, um, a certain tribe in South Sudan. So I use three tribes dancing style now in my performance. There's one that has East Africa, Zulu influence, and I'm doing So you take a little bit there, or sometimes you're performing and you start dancing. And then when you go on internet, you find that there's a dance like that exists in another tribe. Oh yes, yeah. So there's a dance I was doing one time, I was just going for it because of the beat. So I went on the internet. There's an indigenous tribe from Norway. They had this little machine and they were dancing. That's so okay. There's nothing original, you know? That's true. Any beat, whichever way you want to go, somebody has done it somewhere. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I think we need to talk about Wankulu then. Huh? Is it Wankulu, the song? Wanakulu. Wanakulu. Wanakulu, yeah. Wanakulu. Wanakulu. Yeah. That's Nuer, right? Yeah. Wana. Wana. Yes, it's mixed. What does it mean? Let's go, all of us. Okay. <laughs> it's a Nuer in Arabic. Okay. So I was amazed by the video because I saw CEO dancers, the, the three girls. Yeah. Um, there was people doing Pansula and it's also a house track. So we're just playing around. We just did it. <laughs> I have one of, one of my biggest listened songs. It's called Kua. It's a house music. Because most of South Sudanese tribe dance a house song, a house dance. dance with your hair you do like some kind of rock movements in your videos which is pretty funny yeah my hair is part of my uh, uh, style because I didn't know how it even came about it's because like I find something cool about it so I just win and shake it and shake it and go crazy because maybe that music doesn't allow me to do something hmm. else. Yeah. Hmm. I've just about asked you all the questions thanks so much thank you Awesome. <laughs>
Thanks again to Emmanuel Zhao and the volunteers at the Edmonton Folk Music Festival for their time. If you would like to get involved in Emmanuel's movement for global peace, head to we-want-peace.com to find out more information. Well, we'll have to leave it there. That's all the time that we have this week for All That Matters. If you liked what you heard today, you should follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have questions or ideas for the show, email us at allthatmatters@cjsr.com. Our website is allthatmatterscjsr.wordpress.com. Our theme music is by Dokashi Teru. Additional music today by Emmanuel Jal, of course, and Rasheen Murphy. All That Matters is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM from Edmonton. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. And I'm Sarah Kane Balfazema. Thank you for listening. 